Amen. Thank you, Lindsay. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, go ahead and open them. We're in Genesis chapter 18 as we continue through this fantastic journey, the life of Abraham. So rich, so relevant for our day, particularly, I believe, the passages that we're entering into over the next several weeks. I've often thought that preaching is a little bit like being a tour guide. Maybe a tour guide in one of our great national parks that people would come to visit, but they don't come for the tour guide. They come for God's creation. They come for God's word speaking to them through what he has done. We come for the same reasons, I hope. We come to see, we come to hear, we come to be changed by what we experience. And a good tour guide, if he's doing his role well, points people out, points people to the great vista that lies ahead. So I picture myself this morning, we as a body just sort of gathered on this cliff overlooking a tremendous sight, which is, I believe, this particular passage in God's word is beautiful. It's unique. It's a little bit strange, to be honest with you. When you read it, you'll hear that. But oftentimes, the unique and the strange in Scripture is pointing you to a deeper reality, a deeper truth that has power and beauty, and that's the case in this passage. So my prayer this morning is that he would give you and me eyes to see. I want to begin by reading the entire passage that we're going to look at this morning. We don't always do it this way, but I want you to see the whole. I want you to take in the whole view. I want you in your own mind just to imagine what's happening here. Why does this feel different to me? Because this scripture does feel a little bit different than most scriptures or most passages in the scripture. And then after we read the whole, we'll dive in in some particular places and look in detail at some of the verses, some of the words, and dig underneath and ask, what is really going on here in this passage? I think you may be surprised and encouraged by what we discover together. While I'm wearing my tour guide hat, let me point out one other thing. For those of you that typically bring your kids into the worship service with you, and I'm glad you do that. You're certainly always welcome to do that. And by the way, I know we have a number of kids in here this morning that we may not typically have because of the the holiday, the celebration weekend. But for the next two Sundays after today, you may want to use some discretion. We'll be preaching from uh, text and scripture, and I would probably say our sermons for the next two weeks would we'd be rated PG-13+. plus. Themes and topics that are in the Word of God, straight out of the passages of scripture, but you may want to use discretion. Uh, you may want to read ahead over the next week or two as you make those decisions. Well, let's look at this passage this morning that will set us up for the next two weeks. Um, and let's just take in what God has for us this morning. We'll begin in verse 16 of Genesis 18, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Let me say, actually, before I begin, just some context. Lloyd, last week, introduced this chapter. There are three men that have come to visit Abraham, and they tell them over the course of a meal that his wife, Sarah, is going to conceive, which is miraculous in and of itself. And then it slowly dawns on Abraham throughout the meal that one of these visitors is the Lord himself. It's Yahweh Elohim eating a meal with Abraham, and that's certainly remarkable as well. And then now the text picks up in verse 16. 
Then the men rose up from there and looking down toward Sodom, or looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Verse 23, Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous and the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. I shall speak. Suppose suppose 30 are there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham returned to his place. It is a little bit of an unusual passage. It's rather remarkable. I like the way one Bible commentator put it tongue-in-cheek. For all the world, God and Abraham look like two people in a marketplace haggling over the price of melons. When you dig deeper, you find two massive theological themes underneath this text. And I want us to explore those two themes. That'll be our outline for the morning. Theme one, the remarkable relationship God had with Abraham. God and a man conversing this way. It is remarkable. The second theme is the remarkable nature of God's justice. Let's begin with that remarkable relationship between God and Abraham. I want to reread the first three verses, 16 through 19. I'm going to pause and I want to draw your attention. I want to make some observations in the text that sort of flesh out what's happening here in this remarkable relationship. Verse 16, then the men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. Abraham walking with God. Now he had just 
eaten with God prior to that. Remember Lloyd talking about how amazing would it be to to eat a meal with Yahweh and now they're walking together. Walking is such a normal everyday thing. You and I do it multiple times a day. If you're with someone else, you're probably talking as you're walking. And, And that ordinariness of it is remarkable because of who he's walking with. He's walking with Yahweh Elohim, the God of the universe. Don't let that pass you by. It reminds me of when Adam walked with God in the cool of the day in the garden. Remember that reference back in early Genesis? So there's already a reference here back to Adam. You're kind of making that connection of this personal, intimate relationship. Verse 17, God says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Now imagine for a minute that you're having a conversation with someone significant, someone of some influence, someone that you perceive has some power or wealth or celebrity status, and they kind of let you in on the inside. That's what's happening here with God, letting Abraham in. Do you see the personal, intimate trust in this relationship? The text goes on, verse 18, Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now listen to this, for I have chosen him. Hebrew word chosen could just as easily be translated known. For I have known him. You see the personal intimate language that's happening in this text and then it goes on and I want you to look for the covenant language in verse 19. I'll I'll try to emphasize the words as I read them. I've chosen him so that he may command covenant word his children and his household after him to keep another covenant word the way of the lord by doing righteousness and justice more covenant language so that the lord may bring upon abraham what he has spoken another covenant word about him so essentially what's happening in this text is god is reminding abraham of the covenant and he's essentially saying it this way abraham you're my chosen ambassador Through this covenant, I have chosen you. So most like, uh, or or imagine that a head of state or a king or or the head of a government of a powerful nation handpicks an individual to represent the interests of state to a foreign land. That's this idea. Abraham is a chosen ambassador, personally connected, intimate, eating, walking, talking with Yahweh in order that, scoot back up 18 for just, Uh, just a minute, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But note how that's going to happen. And and parents, I'd invite you particularly to note this. Abraham's command is to teach his children and his household. Abraham's command, God doesn't say, hey, Abraham, you've got to go all to the ends of the earth and bless all the nations. No, what God says here is remarkable. And by the way, I think these verses are tremendous sort of life verses for parents. Command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And God is saying, Abraham, you do that. I'll bless the nations through that. I'll do the rest. You focus on your family, Abraham. You focus on your household, Abraham. Tremendous encouragement and responsibility for those of us who lead households. So the first thing we see, God's remarkable relationship with Abraham was personal, mediated by the covenant. There's this 
relationship. Abraham bears the sign of the covenant now. Lloyd mentioned last week he's probably still sore from the sign of the covenant. He's a marked man. So the first thing we see, the remarkable relationship with Abraham was personal, initiated by God through covenant. The second thing that I want you to see as we just point out some things in this text is this remarkable relationship was characterized on Abraham's part by extreme boldness coupled with extreme humility. Extreme boldness on the one hand, extreme humility on the other hand. That's how Abraham is relating to God here. Let's start with the boldness first. I I want you to see again verse 23. This is after the angels had left and it's just God and Abraham standing face to face. Abraham, Abraham came near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Do you see what's happening here? Abraham sort of is bold enough to come near to approach Yahweh and ask this question, will you indeed swipe away or or, or sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That takes some boldness. That takes some confidence in the covenant relationship in order to do this. What's even more remarkable is the Hebrew word that's translated here uh, of him coming near is a word that means in a legal sense to approach the bench, to approach the judge. So it would be used of a plaintiff or it would be used of a lawyer approaching the bench, approaching the judge. This is extreme boldness. And then as the text unfolds, you already heard it. It's almost like he haggles. (laughs) I wouldn't say it that way. I'd say he presses in and he keeps pressing in. Six times he ups the ante, or we should probably say he lowers the ante, right? 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. This amount of boldness almost seems out of place to our ears. But note also that Abraham is speaking to God with extreme humility, I want you to listen to his language. I'll just read excerpts from three verses. Verse 27, Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Verse 30, Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Verse 32, same words. Oh, may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak only this once. That's an idiom that means I'll speak one more time, and then I'm zipping it. (laughs) I'm closing my mouth. You You won't hear another word from me after this. Now, this is a great model for us. He's very bold, no doubt about that, but at the same time, he's amazingly humble, and he's humble because he recognizes the enormous chasm between him and God, right? He says, I'm but dust and ashes before you. And that is true. Abraham recognizes there's a huge canyon in terms of knowledge and wisdom and power and might and ability to see things and judgment, everything, every measure you could imagine. There's an enormous chasm between Abraham and God. And Abraham knows that tremendous humility. Now, I want to say this about humility because in our culture, we tend to have the wrong idea about someone who's humble, someone who's humility. That word is not, is not a good word in our culture. 
we, we tend to think, oh, that person's humble. In other words, it's sort of just a self-deprecating word that you might have this attitude if you're humble, we, we think, of just someone that just said, well, you're, you're better than me. Why don't you do that? Or I don't have any gifts. I don't have any ability. Or, or I don't really have much to offer here. I'm just a humble person. That's not the biblical idea of humility. If you can just get that out of your head, get that out of your head. In the Bible, humility and godliness go hand in hand. And I want to give you sort of a layperson's definition of humility that I think is true to Scripture, and I'll explain why I think that. Here it is. Real humility is simply a true perspective of who you actually are in relationship to God. Real humility is simply a true perspective of who you actually are in relationship to God. Now, if you think about humility that way, you quickly see there's two sides of it. On the one hand, there's the dust and ashes side of it, and that's true. And by the way, that's good to recognize. And there's nothing wrong with being dust and ashes. God made us from the dust, and to the dust we will return. We are dust and ashes before the Lord. Yet there's another side to that coin. If you're in covenant with God, as Abraham is, you may be dust and ashes but you've been chosen, you are beloved, and you are secure in relationship. Extreme humility, extreme boldness. Now, this is why Abraham can talk to God this way. He understands who he is in relationship to God, right? He's bold and he's humble. Now, I want you to think about this back and forth dialogue as a prayer because that's what it is. Right? We tend to think about praying as something that you know, we do when we close our eyes and you know, we, we direct our prayers up there somewhere and it doesn't seem like a prayer when Abraham's walking along talking to this God that he can actually touch and feel. This is a prayer. In fact, this is the first example in Scripture of intercessory prayer. Abraham is pleading a cause. He's pleading a case and he's going to God with boldness and humility. What an example for us. Tim Keller's writing on this passage has been helpful to me as I've put this together. Several insights I've grabbed onto. I want to read to you one of those. This is what he says about this prayer. And and even if you want to think of it this way, Abraham's prayer life as exemplified in this text. Abraham knows this God is a living God, a real God, infinitely loving and infinitely holy at the same time. And it creates this incredible prayer life, neither formal nor vague, but alive, personal, real. It is adventurous and risky and passionate and intimate all at once. I love that. Does that, would those words describe your prayer life? I mean, on a regular basis, your communication with God, uh, could you say that it's adventurous and risky and passionate and intimate? All at once? Could your relationship, could my relationship with God, could my prayer life, could your prayer life be more like this? The answer is yes. And when we get to the end of the message, I want to talk about how that can be more true of the way you talk to God. First, I want to explore our second major theological theme, the remarkable nature of God's justice. Clearly, this text is about justice, is it not? 
Last week, Lloyd talked about a $64,000 question, and he said the whole first half of chapter 18 pivots around this question. It's in verse 14. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Of course, the answer is no. And, And this is the lesson that God was educating Abraham and Sarah on in the first part of this chapter. Nothing is too difficult. If I say you will conceive, Sarah, you will conceive. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Now, there's another lesson that God wants to teach Abraham, and it pivots around another question. But this time, the question is asked by Abraham, not by God. It's in verse 25. Shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? Now, you need to know that that question, just like last week's $64,000 question, both questions are rhetorical. In other words, the answer is obvious, the answer is given, the answer is known, but the question is asked as, as a form of rhetoric. Of course God is able to do anything. He's God, right? First half of the chapter. Second half of the chapter, of course he will deal justly. He is the just judge, and Abraham knows this. He's asking a rhetorical question, but Abraham is asking, what does just justice look like, God? Here we have this case study of this wicked city, Sodom. God, what will your justice look like? Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? How is this going to turn out? You see, Abraham is asking because he wants to know he's being educated on this. Now, this is where it gets very interesting to me. And when I, when I made this realization as I walked through the passage, the whole passage is turned. It, it came alive for me. And, and here it is. Most people, when you read this passage, it sounds like Abraham is challenging God to sort of give something that God doesn't want to give. It almost sounds like Abraham is stepping up and saying, you know, you need to be different, God, or I'm going to challenge you, God. And yes, he's being bold, but that's not what's actually happening here. Let me ask it this way. What if God set him up for this conversation? What if God was drawing him in to enter into this dialogue so that Abraham would learn about the true nature of God's justice. Now, where do I get that from? A couple of places. Note that God brought the subject of judgment up. Abraham did not. Remember, God has this internal dialogue. Should I keep this from him? No, I'm going to tell him what I'm about to do. And he gives the reason why he brings this up. You, know, why did, you ever thought about that? Why did God bring this up? He didn't have to. He could have just taken care of business in Sodom. Abraham didn't have to know about it ahead of time. Why did he bring this up? It says it, right? Back up here, verses 17 through 19. If Abraham's gonna be the father of this nation to do justice and righteousness, he needs to know what that looks like. He needs to be educated on my righteousness, on my justice, Let the education begin. I think there's a couple other hints that God is drawing Abraham in. Note that he sends the angels away, or or rather the angels depart in order to go examine Sodom. Now who's left? Yahweh's left, face to face. Abraham and Yahweh, it's just the two of them. And I believe God waits for Abraham to enter into this conversation. One more hint that God is drawing Abraham uh, uh, in Note the end of verse 21. He says, I'm going to go and see how, how wicked this place is, but there's this little phrase at the end, and if not, 
I will know. God is leaving open the possibility for something different to happen at Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he stands in silence. The angels leave. It's just him and Abraham. And I think he set Abraham up to have this conversation. I think this is exactly the kind of uh, conversation God wants to have with Abraham because he wants to teach them the true nature of God's justice. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's play that out. I want to talk about the, the two big things that Abraham learns about the nature of God's justice through this amazing dialogue. First, Abraham learns that God is always attuned to injustice. We see that in verses 20 through 21. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, what is this idea about the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah? The outcry is a very interesting word. It means the cries of the oppressed, the cries of the victims, calls for help from the victims of cruelty, injustice, violence, sin. The word is first used in the verb form in Genesis chapter 4 after Cain killed his brother Abel. God speaks to Cain and he says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You see, Cain tried to cover up what he'd done. He tried to lie and God says, I've heard the outcry. I've heard the cries of your brother's blood, the victim of this injustice. I have heard it. Now, it's metaphorical language, of course. The blood is not literally crying out like the victims in Sodom and the the oppressed and the the ones that are treated unjustly in in Sodom. Uh, They they may or may not be literally crying out. It's metaphorical language, but here's what we learned by this. The idea is that God hears the cries of the victim and he is moved to action. Would you not want that? And expect that from a just judge. By the way, I think this is worth a a minute or two for us to go down a related but slightly separate path. There are no victimless sins. No victimless sins. Now what do I mean by that? God's design is for his creation to be knit together under his rule, characterized by righteousness and peace. Righteousness and peace. That's that Hebrew idea of shalom, peace. It means everything rightly related, rightly related to God, right related to other people, right related even to the creation. That's God's design for his creation. What sin represents is a tear in the fabric of God's intention. Sin represents righteousness, peace, just being separated, being torn apart just a little bit. Started in the garden, continues the 2015 July 5th, not just out there, but here, right? Every time I sin, every time you sin, it's a little tear in that fabric of God's intention for his creation, of creation living out under God's righteous and peaceful reign. So you may think, well, you know, the biggest sins I, I, I struggle with are, are right here, or they're somehow personal, or they're somehow private. They don't affect anybody else. Be careful with that. 
How, how could it be that my private sins affect other people? Here's what happens. Every time we sin for a moment, we turn our eyes away from our king and we say, I've got this, or I'm gonna grab onto this, or I'm gonna do this, even though it's not according to your plan. You've stepped back away from the righteousness and shalom that God intended for your world, your creation, and the creation. Your family feels that. Your loved ones feel that. Your own soul feels that. Who are the victims of private and personal sins? It starts with you and then expands out to those that you care about the most. We do not sin without victims. Now, this is where it gets uncomfortable for us because if God is a just judge and he hears the outcry of the victims, what does that mean for you and me? I wonder if Abraham started thinking of that as he thought about his own sin. And by the way, this is why we dare not pit justice against mercy, this concept. Okay, we, we, t- we often think, I just want to believe in a God who's merciful. He's not a judging God. Isn't that the cry of our culture? Show me a God of mercy, not a God of judgment. You can't have one without the other men and women. If God was just all mercy and no judgment, what about the outcry of the victim? What about the outcry of the oppressed? What about the injustice? Will he not move to bring justice to the earth? Think about the sickness of our society and our world as victims of broken righteousness, broken shalom, cry out in desperation. Who will be the righteous and just judge? So the first thing Abraham must learn is that God is attuned to injustice, the outcry of the victims of all sin. It reaches his ears. Second, Abraham learns just how much God values righteousness. He learns this through this fascinating process, right, of going back and forth with God. Now, he already knows God loves justice. That's his starting place. Remember that pivotal question, shall not the judge of the earth deal justly? But then he uses that starting place of God is just, and he springs forward from there, and he launches into a fascinating hypothetical scenario. What if, verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Now, this is radical. Let me tell you why this is radical. At first glance, it seems that Abraham is simply asking God to spare the righteous, right? Just, just, there are people that don't deserve to be judged. It seems like that's what Abraham is saying. Spare them, spare them. That's not what he's asking. If if that's what he was interested in, he would have said, will you rescue the righteous? Will you pluck them out like you did with Noah and his family before you sweep away the rest of the city? That's not what Abraham is asking. He's saying something much more radical. What he's essentially asking God is, is there a way that you, God, might spare the whole on account of the righteous few? Is there a way, God, that you would love righteousness so much that the righteous remnant would earn your grace, would earn your mercy for the sinners as well? Could it work that way, God? Is that possible? I dare to ask this question. Remember, God set him up for this conversation. 
It gets even more amazing when you do a word study on the word spare, which is a key word in this passage. It's, it's in verse 24, and then it's all throughout this back and forth dialogue. Will you spare? Will you spare? Will you spare? If you're reading from the NASB, you may notice there's a little note in many of your Bibles next to that word spare. And, and if you, you look at that reference, it says, or forgive. See, in Hebrew, the word literally is lift up. And it's often used for the idea of forgiveness, restoration. So you could accurately interpret this text, God, would you forgive the whole place for the sake of the righteous remnant? Abraham asked this question, and then I believe he probably holds his breath waiting for God to answer. Verse 26, So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare, I will forgive the whole place on their account. And then as this dialogue continues, and I I won't reread it, you can almost imagine and see this profound realization that's just slowly dawning on Abraham. It's like, he said yes. If he said yes to 50, 45, right? You know, and all of a sudden, Abraham becomes like this this great car salesman, you know? It's like, you're not going to walk away from the deal for a few hundred dollars, are you? So Abraham begins to walk God down and step down as this concept of the righteous few could earn forgiveness for the wicked many. Are you kidding me? How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? And every time God's answer is the same. For the sake of these few righteous ones, I will spare, I will forgive the whole city. Wow. Do you see the seed of an idea that God has planted in Abraham's mind through this dialogue? F.B. Meyer, well-known British preacher, long ago contemporary of Dwight Moody, this is what he said about this passage, this dialogue. Abraham did not learn the vast extent of God's righteousness and mercy all at once. He climbed the dizzy heights step by step, and as he gained each step, he was inspired to dare another all the way down to 10. Now, if you're like me and you're reading this, you're thinking, why does he stop at 10? You think maybe he, he just thought he pushed his luck far enough? Maybe. Do you think maybe he thought that surely there's at least 10? I mean, come on, 10 people in the city. Some scholars believe It was because 10 was the minimum number to form a group in that culture or community in that culture. We don't know why he stops at 10, but he stops at 10. And for me, I'm like, why? There's one more, one more place I wanted you to go, Abraham, right? Anybody else feel that as he's stepping down? He's like 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. There's one more, one more. What is it? One! God, allow me to speak just one more time. Would you speak? Bear all the people for the sake of one righteous person. I, 
Abraham doesn't ask the question, but you know the answer. Progressive revelation of Scripture unfolds, and we learn the answer to the question. Yes! Yes! God says, if it's the right one, if it's one who's actually really righteous. You see, in Genesis 18, the the curtain of God's massive plan of redemption is just being opened just a little bit. And this seed of the theological idea of imputed righteousness is being planted in Abraham's mind. Now, what is imputed righteousness? It's this idea that the righteousness of a person could be placed on an unrighteous person and that unrighteous person would be treated as if the righteousness was theirs. That's imputed righteousness. And you see this being explored by Abraham in this passage. And God says, yes, 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 yes. He never stops saying yes. He never says no. Abraham stops at 10. He did not yet know what Solomon would write a thousand years later in Ecclesiastes. There is no one on earth who is righteous. No one who does what is right and never sins. You you see, there there weren't 10. No spoiler alert for next week. (laughs) There wasn't even one. And you know, Lot and his family are saved, but it's not because of their righteousness. Listen to that passage next week as Michael teaches. It was not because of Lot's righteousness that he was spared. It was on account of God's covenant with Abraham. God's promise to Abraham. God just chose to do that. In fact, Lot doesn't want to leave. Now, Abraham did not know God's true definition of righteousness at this point. God hadn't revealed it through the revelation of Scripture, but there's another thing that Abraham could not have imagined, that a thousand years after Solomon, one would come who is truly righteous, right? Fully God, fully man, no depravity in his heart, a clean vessel to obey the covenant, to live out the covenant the way that it was always intended to be, but only one ever in the history of humanity only one and then what does God say as this one comes and lives a perfect life God says yes I will spare the many evil for the sake of the one righteous one but he cannot be spared he must be crushed because I am a just God who hears the outcry of the oppressed. This, men and women, is the full nature of God's justice. The sins of the many placed on the one righteous individual. Forgiveness for the many through the sacrifice of the one, but it has to be the right one. This is the good news. It was the right one. What is the application for us this morning? I just want to cover a few points as we begin to pull these cords together and apply them to our lives. First of all, I hope this one is obvious and clear. If you are someone who has come here today and you are unsure, if you are in relationship with God the Father, this is your opportunity to see and know and believe. All it takes is faith in the one righteous man who 
bore, he bore, he was crushed for your sins. All the outcries of those that you have intentionally or unintentionally victimized as you have turned your face away from God and gone your own way and torn righteousness and torn peace and hurt other people and hurt yourself, all of that sin placed on the one man. Just believe, just trust, put your faith there. That's the good news. Would you believe that? I know many of you have believed that some point in your life you understood that good news you've put your faith in Jesus Christ here's my hope that you would apply this text this morning is that you would allow this message of grace to propel you ever closer into the kind of remarkable relationship with God that Abraham was beginning to experience the gospel will propel you there let me explain what I mean. You think Abraham had a remarkable relationship with God? He didn't even see the full picture. He only got down to 10, right? He still had the wrong view of righteousness. In some ways, he still had the wrong view of justice. He didn't have all of the scriptures, the full revelation of God like we have. You think Abraham experienced communion with God and eating with him and walking with him? Yes, but he did not have the spirit. God left. Abraham was alone at the end of this passage. He could still talk to him, but his presence wasn't there. You have the presence of God through the spirit. Spirit of God that indwells you if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. Talk about constant communion. Talk about eating with God. Talk about walking with God. Talk about brushing your teeth with God. Talking about going throughout your whole day with God. We have that opportunity, men and women. You think Abraham was bold and humble with God? That's nothing compared to the prayers that you could pray if you grasped onto the gospel deeper and deeper and deeper. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's what the gospel teaches you. Believers in Jesus Christ, those that you already believe, you think the gospel is something you just understand once and move away from it? No, you never move away from the gospel. The gospel teaches you that you are depraved and wicked enough on your own that Jesus had to die for you. And the gospel teaches that you are chosen, beloved enough that he did die for you. You see, humility, boldness. When you start getting that that's the kind of covenant that you have with God, this unilateral relationship where it doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what you do, God's not going away. He's for you. He's with you. He knows you. He's chosen you. You see how that could just birth in you some boldness as you talk to him? Along with this humility, because you never take your eyes off the cross. You see extreme boldness, extreme humility coming together. And I've got to go one more place very quickly. Men and women, our relationship, remarkable relationship with the God of the universe should propel us to intercede for other people like Abraham. Sodom wasn't friendly toward him. This was a wicked place. Yet he pleads, he pleads, God, would you spare them? Would you allow them to come under the banner of this righteous one? Do you see the application for us as we pray for our leaders, as we pray for our country, as we pray for our neighbors? God, would you allow them to come under the banner of the one righteous one? Would you spare them? Would you bring them to salvation? Would you bring them under the banner of your grace? Would you do this? And I'm gonna boldly ask you because I have a relationship with you and you're listening to me now and I ask with humility, but I ask with boldness. Would you do that for your family members, for your neighbors, for our country, for our leaders? We're called to do this. 
We can do this. God invites us to do this. He sets us up to do this. Father, as we pray, remind us that we are in relationship with you, not by our own accord, but by the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that this good news that these men and women have heard, hopefully over and over again, would be sinking its way deeper and deeper and deeper into their hearts, that all of us, Father, would be able to experience a renewed sense of relationship with you as we contemplate and reflect on the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ and its implications for us. And God, we come to you interceding on behalf of other sinners who don't yet understand the gift of grace that is available to them. Would you save them? The, the, the individuals, the names, the, the faces that are coming to minds right now all around this room, God, would you, in your own way, in your own timing, would you reveal to them the true good news about Jesus Christ and grant them the faith to believe in it? And would you keep us praying with boldness and humility to that end? In the great name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great day.